Well, this is a little weird because we are zooming, but um, I'm glad for uh, I'm glad that we're able to do it this way. I hope everybody's staying warm. I want to begin with a couple of questions. Uh, first is what is the ultimate purpose of Scripture? And secondly, what does Scripture declare? These are two important questions that we must answer to appropriately read and listen to and study and teach and preach the Word of God, which, as we've said over the last two weeks, is our priority. And to answer those questions, we don't have to look any further than our own confession, which answers this way. It pleased the Lord at various times and in diverse ways to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the revelation wholly to writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures, uh, Scripture is most necessary God's former ways of revealing His will to His people having ceased. Now, there's a lot packed into that paragraph, but as far as the two questions I asked are concerned, this is what we glean. When we read and hear the paragraph, the first thing we hear are the echoes of Hebrews 1.1, and it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hans has a friend who puts it this way. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that Jesus is the last thing God had to say about himself. So, God willingly, gladly, and mercifully chose to reveal himself and his will, and he did so fully and finally through the person, teaching, and work of Jesus Christ. And John calls him the Word. Jesus was and is the Word made flesh. He's the Word incarnate. And God also willingly and gladly and mercifully committed that revelation of Himself that culminated in Christ to writing, which we call the written Word of God or the Scriptures. As we said last week, this isn't a book that contains the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So the confession says the ultimate purpose of Scripture is to reveal God. And it declares His will. It declares His desire and plan regarding both the way to life and His desire and plan regarding the way of life. In other words, it declares how we can be saved and how we are to live as those who are saved. And all other ways or means of revelation have ceased. Now, I, I begin there because this is the lens through which we are going to look at our passage tonight. We're going to look at the occasion and simply walk through the narrative itself. We'll see the revelation and learn what and how God reveals himself in Christ. And then finally, we'll see the instruction and, and learn what he says regarding the way to life and the way of life. Um, and before we do that, let me uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, the end of preaching is to know Christ and impart his truth. So in these moments, by your Spirit, would you awaken our attention and refresh us, encourage us, convict us, and comfort us as we see him and hear his gospel tonight. As always, I admit that I am weak and needy and unfit in and of myself for this task, so I ask for your support and strength 
and filling of your Spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. I have prayed as I always do, always do for my preparation, and I pray tonight that I would communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency despite our circumstances and despite this mode, um, and that I would do so for the sake of Christ and His church. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's begin with the occasion. Uh, as we've mentioned the last two weeks, word quickly spread uh, regarding the authority and power that Jesus was exhibiting in both his miracles and teaching. More and more uh, people were being amazed and astonished at not only his casting out of demons and healing of the sick, diseased and disabled, but also at his delivery and more important, the content of his teaching. And as word spread, the crowds gathered more frequently and grew in number by the day. And on this particular occasion, on the shore of the Sea of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, Luke says the crowd was so large and the people so intent on hearing the message from God about God that Jesus had to create some space. And so in verse 2, Luke says that he looked around, Jesus looked around, and he saw two empty boats that had been beached, and the owners having been out all night fishing, were now cleaning their nets in preparation for the next night when they would head back out and do the same. Uh, and verse 3 says that he walked over, Jesus walked over to one of those boats, and he got in and asked the owner, who was Peter, if he would shove off into the shallow water so he could teach. And this would not only create the space that he wanted, uh, it would provide the amplification he needed. If any of you have ever been on a lake, you know how sound carries along the water. Uh, so Peter joined by his crew, uh, did as Jesus asked, and they went out into shallow water, and Jesus sat down, and as was his custom, uh, he began to teach. And, and Luke doesn't tell us what he was teaching, but we can assume it was the good news of the kingdom of God, because as we learned last week, it was the gospel that he was sent to proclaim. One commentator put it this way, Christ uses Peter's boat as a pulpit to throw the net of the gospel over his hearers. Well, in verse 4, uh, Luke says that when he was finished, he looked at Peter and, and told him to head out into deeper water and let down the nets in order to catch some fish. And Peter's response in verse 5 is very interesting. First, he calls Jesus Master, which means he not only knows Jesus, but respects Jesus and acknowledges his authority. Second, he doesn't hesitate to let Jesus know that the chances of catching anything were slim. For one thing, deep water fishing during the day was a waste of time because the nets would be visible. And for another, they had been out all night the night before in ideal conditions and had worked and worked and worked and worn themselves out and hadn't caught a fish. And third, despite the fact that he was the owner, Peter was the owner of the boat and therefore the captain, and despite the fact that he was a professional fisherman, and despite the fact that Jesus was a carpenter's son, not a fisherman's son, and despite the fact that all the signs pointed to this being an exercise in futility, Peter says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. In other words, you've told me to, so I'm going to do it. He had every reason and maybe even every right to say, you know, it's my professional opinion that that would be a waste of time. Not to mention the fact that the boys and I just cleaned the nets and don't want to have to do it all again before we go back out tonight. 
and we really need to get some sleep because it may be another long night. So I really, really think we should head back to shore. But he didn't. Jesus spoke and Peter obeyed. He disagreed, but he obeyed. Well, it wasn't long before the nets were full. And so full that verse 6 says the nets were not just coming untethered from the boat, but were actually breaking. And verse 7 says they had to call for the second boat that was on the shore to come and help. And when the boat arrived, they were, there were enough fish to fill both boats and nets and weigh them down to the point that they were taking in water over the sides. And, of course, that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been a big deal if they had been in shallow, shallow water, but they were in deeper water. And what happens next to me is even more amazing than what had just occurred. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Uh, when what happened was obviously supernatural, and Peter and the others were awestruck. Peter had already been exposed to the authority and power of Jesus since he had been more than likely present when his mother-in-law was healed. So this now solidified it. This time, Peter called Jesus Lord instead of Master, and not because Jesus was just any superior. Peter called him Lord because he recognized that he was a messenger or agent of God. So he believed he was in the presence of the divine. And being in the presence of God's divine representative, he immediately fell to his knees at the feet of Jesus and in doing so revealed a couple of things. First, he, he acknowledges Jesus' sovereignty. And, and two, he, he's feeling or his, he was feeling and expressing his sense of unworthiness in the presence of the divine. His reaction was much like the reaction of Isaiah, who was brought into the presence of the Lord and was immediately confronted with his own sin. And it was so overwhelming that Peter asked the one who could obviously keep their boats from sinking to leave. It might be possible to say he would rather drown than be in the presence of the Lord due to his own sinfulness. Some say it's a full-fledged repentance. Others um, say that that would be taking it too far. But what is obvious is that Peter responds with honesty regarding himself and his sin, as well as humility and submission in relation to the divine. And verses 9 and 10 tell us that the others, including James and John, were feeling the exact same way. Peter's just the one who had and would continue to be the one that was singled out as the representative of the group. And at the end of verse 10, Jesus responds in a way that Peter apparently did not expect based upon his request that Jesus depart. Um, Jesus says, do not be afraid. He wants them to take a deep breath and relax. Not only does he not want to reprimand or chastise Peter or the others, he wants to use them. He wants to include them in what he was sent to do. Of course, they they would not because they could not be a part of the actual work of redemption. That was something only Christ can do. But they could be a part of the ministry of proclamation. So he says, from now on, you will be catching men. And the language is 
So interesting. Jesus is telling them that this is a decisive point in which things are going to fundamentally change for them. They are no longer going to be catching fish. They're going to be catching men. And the catching of men was going to be unlike the catching of the fish in that you know, the end result would not be, um, the end result would be life, not death. Fish die after being caught. Jesus' words express the fact that they will be actually rescuing men from death and saving them to life through the message of the gospel that they were called to proclaim. And in verse 11, we see their response. It says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. On the way back in, they had time to contemplate all that had happened and all that Jesus had said. And, and when they reached the shore, they had a had to decide if they were going to leave their homes, their way of life, their vocations, and everything they knew. It was going to be a very significant commitment. They had to decide whether what had always been important to them would remain important, if their priorities would remain their priorities, if their dreams would remain their dreams. And on that day, the course of their lives took a drastic turn because they decided to follow Him. So that's the occasion that's the historical event. Now let's look at the revelation. What did God reveal about himself through the person of Christ in the passage? And I just, I've listed these. Um, I just want to walk through them. I just want to share them to you and list them as, as I walk through this. First, he revealed himself to be omniscient and omnipotent. He revealed himself to be one who could guide and provide. He revealed himself to be a wise teacher who took advantage of teachable moments and the ordinary things of life to illustrate important spiritual truths. He revealed himself to be compassionate and merciful and kind to sinners who he wants to draw near to him rather than fearfully withdraw from him. He revealed himself to be one who, in Daryl Bach's words, turns sinners into servants. He revealed himself to be one who includes human beings in his ministry of proclamation. And he calls and uses those from all walks of life, including those the world sees as lowly, uneducated, and untrained. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And of course, through his illustration, he revealed himself to be sovereign, not only over creation, but the salvation of men. The call is for humans to go fishing for humans through the proclamation of the gospel, but it is he who determines where, when, who, and how many we catch. Finally, there is the instruction. What does this passage teach us about the way to life and the way of life? Let's look first at the way to life. Again, just kind of listing these. First, the road to salvation begins with humility. It begins with an acknowledgement of God being an all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, and holy God that, and that we are not Him. It continues with a proper estimation of ourselves and the acknowledgement of the enormous disparity between man and God. It involves the acknowledgement of one being a sinner and 
and an offender of that holy God who should in fact fear and tremble as they recognize their unworthiness to be in his presence. And again, while there is some disagreement about whether this was an actual experience of repentance and faith, both are a part of the way of life or way to life as well. It involves repenting and turning from sin and turning in faith and drawing near to Christ, the only one who can save us from our sin. And what about the way of life? Again, whether this was an actual conversion experience or not, we gain valuable insight into the lives the Lord can and will use. Those the Lord can and will use are those who are willing to submit to His guidance and His plans no matter how strange they may seem. The, Lord, the Lord's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And what may seem to be right and logical and clear in our minds may not be the way the Lord chooses to work. But those the Lord can and will use are willing to obey, even though they may disagree. Humility and submission are the key. And boys and girls, I want to pause here and and just ask you to think for a minute. There are a lot of times you have opportunities with your parents to to obey even though you may disagree. There are things that they ask you to do. There are things that they want you to do. There are things that they instruct you to do. And and you may have a better plan. You may have uh, a different way of thinking. But in the end, uh, your parents love you. They want what's best for you. uh, And it's always, always, always best for you to obey even though you may disagree. And you may not always get the opportunity like Peter to uh, share your your particular opinion. But that's okay. Because again, they want what's best for you. Uh, it's always good uh, to humble ourselves and submit to those um, to our parents. And that that of course leads me to the last point. The the way of life for the follower of Christ, for the disciple is a life of forsaking all else and clinging to him. Of course, Peter and the the others Jesus would call to follow were a specific group called at a specific time to uh, fulfill a specific purpose. And while they were called to actually leave their livelihoods and homes, that may or may not be the case for us. For some, uh, they believe that they have experienced the call and have responded by selling everything and left their homes and families to move to the mission field to proclaim the gospel and to minister in His name And you may be one of those at some point. You may be called to do just that. But for most, it's more of a willingness than an actual or literal forsaking. In other words, it's a willingness to forsake family and friends and homes and jobs and even liberty and life if called upon. In the words of James Foote, it is not likely, my friends, that you will be called on to make any such sacrifices to a great extent in a literal sense. But it is absolutely necessary that you rise to that spirit which will lead you to renounce everything which would keep you from following Christ. You know, at the same time, we are called to forsake literal things like our own self-righteousness, our sin, our pride, and our trust in those things we've turned into idols like family and children and jobs and money and certain possessions and positions on which we believe our happiness and satisfaction depend. In other words, we are to forsake the idolatrous status of our families, children, and possessions, not necessarily our families, children, and possessions themselves. And yet, 
we need to be ready to do so should we be called upon to do so. And this isn't simply a one-time forsaking, but a life of forsaking, just as it is a life of repenting. And that isn't easy, is it? Actually, it's very, very difficult. And we often fail, don't we? But there is good news. Even when we struggle and fail in our submitting and fail in our obeying and fail in our forsaking, when we fail to live the words many of us grew up singing, I surrender all, Christ has promised to never leave or forsake us. Even when we are unfaithful, He continues to be faithful to us. And His submitting to and obeying His Father and and His forsaking all for the sake of His Father's will and for our salvation has been credited to us. Church, may we rest in Him and may we live out of gratitude because His grace always, always, always supersedes our guilt. Let's go to Him in prayer. By Your Spirit, Father, and by your grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power. For your glory, and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.